and welcome back in to part two of our uh, two-part series of memorable moments and uh, interesting characters where it's kind of a unique storytelling um, show that we've got because it doesn't necessarily deal with any one individual or any one theme. It's kind of a little bit uh, all over the place because what we're doing is, well, not we, uh, Mick and George are retelling some of the stories of some of the individuals and events that took place at AWA shows. And I think, guys, one thing that I think this does is it jogs a lot of memories for fans because there are a lot of people out there that, I don't know if you guys get it, but I get it as well. It's like, you know, whatever happened to so-and-so, whatever happened to so-and-so, you know, I remember this. And this is an opportunity for you guys to maybe dive in a little bit deeper into some of these little miscellaneous events that they're like, I remember that. Yes. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why we did the show, why we decided to do it, because there are a lot of, of these little miscellaneous stories that I, I think become so iconic over the course of time. And I think I think it's one that we started out as just one episode, but it quickly uh, it quickly spiraled into uh, into two here, and, and I mean, let's go ahead and um, kick it off with you, George. We'll uh, we'll get to the sponsorships and the plugs a little bit later, but I, I want to jump right back in because I believe that uh, we're coming in with uh, no, no, no. This is the, I'm sorry, Mick. This is you. Uh, you got the uh, the Texas Outlaws coming up here. Yeah, uh, one thing that I would want to mention to your point, Chris, about you know the fans. Fans of today, this may be all foreign to them about the riots and everything else because now it's so structured. I mean, every once in a while, a fan will get into the ring, you know, yeah. a wrestler. That's the exception. Back in the day, there were riots at every show, and, and there was not the, uh, you know, the security all over the building, and you got television cameras all over the place. wasn't like that. It was a, a live house show. And especially depending on what part of the country you were in, it really got out of hand. It got really serious in a lot of places. So maybe foreign to some of our younger uh, listeners and viewers, mm -hmm. but uh, this is the real deal. Pretty commonplace. Yeah. What I want to talk about right now is another incident uh, involving, sadly, fan violence. And this goes back to the 1970s. And you had two heel tag teams working against each other. Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle on one side and the Texas Outlaws, Dusty Rhodes, and Dick Murdoch on the other side. Now, the fans made their choice known pretty early on. They were going to cheer the Texas Outlaws, uh, Rhodes and Murdoch. And at one point in the match, Nick Bockwinkle got tossed to the outside of the ring, and all of a sudden, you see a fan. And as we mentioned last week, this fan had a little bit of a knife and he's trying to get at Nick Bockwinkle. All of a sudden, the action spills into the ring. Now, even Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch are aware of this. They, they know what's going on. There's a shot of Nick and Ray as well. Bob O'Brien, the police officer that we have mentioned many, many times, actually got in the ring and got stabbed by this fan. Uh, luckily, it was a superficial wound. Uh, he just had kind of a penknife kind of a thing. The fan was knocked out by referee Chuck Svensson that we mentioned before. George talked about how Chuck every once in a while would deck a guy. 
But you talk about your near riot situations. This was one that, you know, had the guy had a, a bigger weapon or bigger knife or a gunner. It's going to have been deadly. Um, one of the one of the riots that I actually witnessed firsthand uh, back in the day. And again, you got two heel tag teams. Yeah. So it really didn't. It's the frenzy. It's the believability that the fans were buying into. Did, did referees step in much like that, Mick? to to protect the boys because i mean sometimes referees are supposed to be weak and meager and you know kind of subservient to the heels and everything but you mentioned were, were there times where they had to you know they had to kind of puff their chest out to protect their co-workers and the boys yes and they did i mean they they absolutely did i know that uh eddie sharkey both as a wrestler and a referee more than once would talk about how they had to do some crowd control mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times you know you, you would see uh, more and more wrestlers becoming referees on occasion whether it was Kenny J George Kadaski Bill Crouch they went to the wrestlers to handle certain situations if okay. they, they didn't go out looking for trouble but if trouble found them they were ready to go okay all right uh, what do you got for your next one here George well it, it follows along the same lines you know the wrestlers, I, as I mentioned in our last show, the, the wrestlers often said that the one thing they feared more than anything else, it was the fans because the heels were there to really rile them up, get them frustrated, get them irritated, get them to hate them. And sometimes they had to cross that line as to how far they can go. This one goes with our old friend, Dr. X. He had uh, been in a match and he had really done his dirtiest as usual. He had won Won the, or won the match and or lost the match by disqualification. And as he was going back to the locker room area, they usually had the, the, the police officer with him. But he's walking back, and this group of fans kind of getting in his face. And he, remember we said that in the old days they could smoke in the arenas. Well, this fan had a cigarette, and he put the cigarette out on the doc's shoulder as doc was going through the crowd. Doc turned around and literally hit the fan right in the face. The fan went down. The cops got Doc out of there. Well, wouldn't you know, it made the newspapers. And it was interesting because they actually revealed in the newspaper clipping Dr. X, or called him Dick Byer. The fan, wow. and I'm not going to give the, the fan credit for even having his name mentioned even today. But he did try to sue the wrestling office, and it was thrown out because he had interjected himself into the action, mm -hmm. and Dick or Dr. X was only uh, protecting himself. The interesting thing was is that though his name was in the paper, it was never mentioned, and no one ever figured it out afterwards, and it kind of goes to the saying that maybe some fans just never saw it. No doubt wow. about it. You know, again, it the, was the rule back then. The wrestlers had a long way to go sometimes, Chris, um, from the ring down one hallway and uh, way down to the other side of the hallway to get to the heels locker room. And they might have had a cordon of fans around them, yeah. but you, you can only do so much. You know, the fans are in the hallway with the wrestlers, and they had access to them. So um, this is a little bit more lighthearted as we're talking about the, the – uh, the more outlandish fans. Back in 1967, I want to say, give or take, 
uh, Lou Thez, who was a probably one of the greatest top three, top four wrestlers of all time, was working in the Twin Cities, and Lou was a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion. So he's on television, and he's working a, a squash match against an enhancement talent, and he is introduced by Roger Kent, the ring announcer, as the five-time world heavyweight champion. There's a, a shot of Lou. Well, there's a couple of young, smart-ass punks in the audience that follow wrestling very closely, and they know that Lou Thez is not a five-time champ. He's a six-time champ. Was one of them named George Shire? No. Oh. One of them that was named Karsh, actually. <laughs> So you were on the right track. Simultaneously, as Roger Kent makes his announcement that, you know, five-time world heavyweight champion, these two clowns sitting in the audience, and it's on YouTube of all things. It's on YouTube. You can see it. We simultaneously yelled, six! Well, Roger looked at us, and, you know, if looks could kill, Literally and truthfully, we saw him go over to Vern Gagne before the match took place, and we could audibly hear Vern saying, get those little shits out of the studio. Throw them out. Well, they didn't throw us out, but that was the beginning of me annoying the wrestling office for the next 21 years until they hired me. But it's on YouTube. I'm telling you, it's black and white. I think Luth, I think there's his wrestling... A bad man, Jose Quintero, if I believe. And you will see me in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. I had like a, uh, you know, my three sons, Robbie Benson type haircut. And <laughs> there is just the two of us yelling six. There you go. And ironically, what's sad is that Mick was correct. However, so was Roger Kent because Luthez really only held the NWA title five times. Why would you ruin the story? They messed it. They messed it up because he held the National Wrestling Association Championship beforehand, and they merged them together. So technically, this was the time you were both right. Thanks, George. But you were a smartass. I saw it on the tape. Never happened. Yeah, Robbie, that little Douglas thing. I like that. Yeah. All right, uh, what do you got for your next one here, George? Well, you know, this is one that's endearing to our hearts. I don't think there was a card we went to where in the front row center, there was a guy that uh, we just know him as Frank. But Frank had one of the most endearing, memorable, uh, he gave you the finger, the wrestlers all the time. He was constantly giving him the fingers. We talked to what, the last Was it episode. like this or was it, it was like it a. It was straight up. up. Yeah, what it was, was straight like up. Forceful? And he like made. Me. Yeah, he knew which one it was. But he was in every wrestler's face, giving him the fig. And he stood up all the time and did it. Ironically, this guy got a part in the, the wrestler movie. He's in there. They show Frank. I will add. And he didn't have all his teeth. That dentist convention could have been in play once again. But he's in every wrestling card. And he would have his program there. And this was always hard for me. 
he'd have his program there and he'd always have it on the floor. He'd be stepping on it. And at the end of the night, you'd go over there and his pop and his popcorn's all over it. Just an obnoxious individual. You know, I want to add, and George will remember this about Frank. First of all, yeah, you're right. Frank is prominently featured in The Wrestler, as was little Ricky. So apparently, you know, you had to be completely off the wall and you got a major part in that. Why we weren't in there, I don't know. I don't know. At at any rate, Frank not only would flip in the bird, Chris, but he would do it Mm -hmm. in so many different ways, behind his back, over his head, in his ear. He was a contortionist, and sometimes you look at this guy and you think, did he just put his finger up his own rear end? Where did the, where did the <laughs> finger go to? I'm not sure, but this is, you know, Frank Stutkin was the guy. His last name was Stutkin, and I don't know if he's still around because this was a long time ago, but, man, what, what a character. Jesse Ventura and Frank went head-to-head a lot of times. Oh, man, I'm sitting here just like working with my camera and listening to the stories. Um, I I know Frank is somebody, and I know that I'm a little bit blurry here. Um, I know that Frank is a name that people have brought up to me, and I didn't know anything uh, about him. But, I I mean, he just, he seems like he's just one of those guys that you just kind of got to chuckle out of too, right? I I mean, is that just kind of, you look at him, you're like, that's just Frank being Frank? Oh, he was harmless. I mean, no, he wasn't going to attack the wrestlers or anything. But I mean, he was what when he, when the fan became more of the show than what was going on in the ring. That's when it got a little bit distracting. And you know, it was funny to the fans because Jesse literally would get out of the ring and you know would stand yeah. up in front of Frank and you know finger Frank as we called him, and and uh, you know he'd go nose to nose with them. That's when it got a little annoying, but they were characters. Every territory had somebody. Dallas had somebody they called Hatpin Mary. She would yeah. literally take her hat pin and stick it in a wrestler's thigh as he was walking back to the ring. Uh, every territory had somebody. We had our Franks and our little Rickies and so on and so forth. I know the, the next one that you've got, Mick, is funny. Wrestling fans, a lot of them are like, I want to be a wrestler. I want to be a wrestler. I want to, you know, they'll go and they'll be like, okay, I can do this. And it's not as easy as what people think. Very seldomly do I hear stories of wrestlers that want to, well, fans that want to be wrestlers, they actually go through with it and they actually become somebody. And this seems like it was kind of a a rarity. It was a rarity. And again, different eras. We talked so many times about, the glaring differences between the the golden age, the old days of wrestling, and today. Now there's wrestling camps all over the place. Um, you know, depending on who you know and what you know, how many tickets you can sell, you can become a pro wrestler. Back in the day, wasn't so easy. There were a handful of camps, and they meant business. Particularly Vern Gagne's training camp here in, in the Twin Cities area. Uh, you had to be an athlete. You had to be tough. You had to be really tough yeah. just to survive the training, uh, let alone, you know, the stick to uh, to get into the business. But uh, my story is about one of those fans. And this is in 1971, June of 1971. I'm at the Calhoun Beach Hotel where they're doing the AWA TV tapings. And there's a young man. I forget how old he was. I'm going to guess maybe 
18, 19 years old. I, I think he was still in high school. And we were just kind of schmoozing before they opened up the doors for TV. And he said, you know what? I really want to wrestle. I want this is what I always wanted to do, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a huge Nick Bockwinkle fan. Well, not only was he a Nick Bockwinkle fan, but later on that night when Nick signed the permission slip uh, for me to start the Bockwinkle Brigade, this fan was also there, introduced himself to Nick, and he has his name on the original signed permission slip to run the Bockwinkle fan club. And the man I'm talking about is, of course, Paul Pershman from Richfield, Minnesota, uh, an all-around athlete, uh, great softball player, great hockey player, but he wanted to wrestle. And he eventually became Playboy Buddy Rose. And when Paul broke into the business, they beat the shit out of him at training camp so badly. And I believe it was uh, Larry Hainini, Lars Anderson, that did most of the damage. Uh, because as I said, you wanted to break in, mm-hmm. they made sure you were ready. And Paul, actually, the first year didn't make it. He went home. Uh, camp was a little tough for him. Billy Robinson was another guy that just beat the tar out of him. But he had the guts and the determination. He wanted to be a wrestler. Came back to, you know, later on, and the rest is history. But, but that, oh, go ahead, George. I'd only piggyback on that by saying that, you know, when Mick touched on the training camps and they're a dime a dozen today and you're not sure if you're going to get anything for your money and become a wrestler, but when you went through Vern's camp, you went through Stu Hart's camp or Hiro Matsuda's camp. Eddie Sharkey. Eddie Sharkey. Oh, yes, Eddie Sharkey, too. You got your money's worth, and you knew how to not only protect yourself when you got into the business, but you learned how to wrestle. And, yeah, the guys did work them over. Billy Robinson was ruthless with some of the boys. and But it was just a way of we're going to make you tough, and we're going to make sure you got the right decision, and we're yeah. going to make sure you, you want to do this, and you'll be better for it. And if you look at any wrestler that came out of Vern's camp, and Buddy Rose included, they were all successful in mm-hmm. the business and made money. I just want to mention the Billy Robinson situation with Paul Pershman because Paul, you know, was a good friend of mine and, you know, we hung out a lot and he was kind of giving me step-by-step detail uh, about the training camp. And he said that what Billy Robinson did with him now, he, he didn't beat him up. They went to a collar to elbow hookup in the middle of the ring and Billy Robinson said, all right, you know, punk, I want you to move me. And for the next 40 or 45 minutes, all it was was Paul attempting to move Billy Robinson to get him out of a stationary position while they're in his collar to elbow. And it became so exhausting for Paul that he wound up puking all over the mat after the fact. And Billy Robinson is doing jumping jacks. And and he basically said, you're a pussy. You're never going to make it in this business. That was the boot camp. That was Vern Gagne's training camp. They were ruthless. They were serious. But Paul went on to make a lot of money in this business. And God bless him. Um, he, he wanted it and he got it. Was there a, you know, after stepping away the first time, Nick, to come back, was there like a certain amount of, did he ever say that he felt like a, a certain amount of, like he had something to prove because he had stepped away and he had kind of given it up and then come back? Or did he mention, like, you know, did people really 
were they surprised to see him come back then? Because I mean, some people when they quit, they're just like, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, and then they just walk away. But I mean, to to try it and realize, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't work, and then come back to it. Like, I, I just don't know very many people that do that and then do it successfully. Paul was a different breed. Uh, you know, as I said, when I met him, he said, I'm going to be a wrestler, pure and simple. Um, I don't think there was ever, uh, excuse me, a doubt in his mind, even if he didn't make it the first time, that he was going to come back and do it again. I think the guys were surprised when he did come back. Uh, for another go around, because in Vern Gagne's training camp, if a hundred guys showed up on the first day, it was down to about six or seven the next day, just from the calisthenics. So not only did Paul go through that and endure Billy Robinson and Larry Hennig and Vern Gagne and you know, David, but he came back to fight another day, and he lived the dream. He wanted to do it, and he did it. And uh, hats off to my old buddy. And, you know, it's a credit to guys like Buddy Rose that we've heard the stories of others that have walked away and not come back. Well, Buddy Rose didn't. And what it really was is proving to Billy, proving to Vern that you had what it takes. That's what they wanted to see because they wanted to protect the business. They wanted you to be able to go out there and work a good match, give a good account of yourself. And they wanted to make sure you were serious. It was that simple. And they would do everything they could to discourage you. And the more you came back, the more respect you got from them. Yeah, and I think that's a a really good point because it proves that you will come back. And, um, yeah, I mean, hey, Playboy Buddy Rose. I mean, you know, we all know him. And, you know, Mick, uh, you know, personal friend of, you know, good personal friend of yours. Uh, George, tell me about the, uh, the Buddy Wolf story. Well, speaking of another buddy, this one, this one was hilarious. I had a lady that sat one chair over from me. And during a Buddy Wolf match, now you know I've endeared myself to wrestling programs. I never understood why someone would pay a buck for their program and then spill their pop on it or their popcorn or walk on it. This lady, Buddy Wolf, had fallen out of the ring right in front of us. He's laying there on the floor, you know, putting over the fact that he'd been tossed out. And this lady got into his face, and Buddy's picture was on the back cover of the Wrestling News magazine. She ripped it off and threw it down there, crunched it up, and threw it on Buddy and said, Take that, you son of a bitch. And she hated him so much. And Buddy looked up at her, and I swear to you, he smiled. (laughs) <laughs> it was like he got her she believed it and then he struggled through got up and went but i'm sitting there like you just ripped your program and it was a great story but buddy actually gave her a smile you know what it, it what did buddy care it wasn't his dollar exactly. you know he got the dollar yeah it was a full page back cover she ripped it off and crunched it up Take before, before I tell you my, what really is, is my last personal story about fan violence, George will remember this, how nuts the fans were back in the day. If a wrestler bled, no matter if it was a self-inflicted wound or whatever, you would see people, the wrestler would leave like a pool of blood or a droplets of blood on the you know from the ring back to the locker room. And people not only would... Pick it, pick it up on their finger or a program or a napkin, 
but they actually would taste it. Yes. I yes. saw this. Did they have to make sure that it was real and it wasn't some gimmick like ketchup or something? Absolutely. Okay. And it grossed you out. It, it, they, they literally would pick it up and, yeah, it's real blood, all right. I mean, can you imagine in this day and age? Oh, God, uh, no. You, I mean, you wouldn't even get near it. You know what? And, and reality, I don't give a shit if it would have been ketchup back in the day. If it was laying on the floor, I'm not going to put my finger in it and then taste it. You know, I don't care what it is. Food coloring, you know, Kool-Aid. Ketchup, you ate ate the hot dog of thumb-sucking dude you talked about. I mean, no, but it was. It was gross. People really did that. It's real. It's real. Well, I I mean, well, if you're talking about wrestling fans, I can only imagine some of the things that have been in their mouth. So that ketchup the least of their worries. Well, you guys are talking about hot dogs and thumbs, and I mean, I'm I'm just trying to keep up with you, with you fellas. So as we were saying, uh, yes, your 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 last one, and I think this is a guy that he got a lot of heat. I, I feel like this this gentleman always put himself in danger, but he knew that that was that was part of the job. We've talked about Bobby Heenan getting hit over the head with a claw hammer by a fan in Chicago. Uh, a fan shot at he and Nick Bockwinkle from the balcony. So Bobby, yes, he was the heat magnet. He was a blowtorch. He was nuclear uh, when it came to getting heat. The match that I'm going to be talking about was a tag team match in the Twin Cities. There's the brain in all his glory. And it was kind of a blow off. It was Greg Gagne and Vern Gagne against Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby Heenan. Now, as fans know, Bobby played the coward a lot of times where he would dash in and out of the ring with a guy chasing him. So they were doing that spot at some point in the match. And I think it was Greg that was chasing Bobby. Bobby would get into the ring, roll out on the other side. They did that a few times. Well, all of a sudden there's a fan. And again, I use that term loosely waiting for Bobby Heenan as Bobby exited the stay at the ring underneath the lower rope strand one last time. The fan clocks Bobby as Bobby is getting like to a standing position outside the ring. Now, Bobby is in the heat of the moment. He doesn't know that this is a fan. He doesn't have his wits about him. They were probably 25, 30 minutes into the match. He's sweaty. He's out of breath and everything else. So Bobby, thinking that maybe it was Greg, thinking maybe it was Vern, starts selling for the fan. He starts selling, and he's got his platinum blonde hair flapping in the breeze and everything else, when in reality, it was a fan who took a punch at him. And, of course, they escorted the fan out of the ring, but it just blew my mind that at that moment, because he was caught up in the drama and doing his job, instead of realizing, hey, this son of a bitch just took a shot at me, Bobby's going into full, full-blown full selling mode. Uh, but, again an incidence of fan violence. So what, what was his reaction when he found out that it was a fan that took a shot at him and it wasn't part of the show? I mean, did, did his demeanor change? I mean, do you remember what happened after yeah. that when he realized what had gone on? 
He went right back in the ring and continued like nothing ever happened. And I talked to him afterward. I remember it because I saw him outside. It was about 20 degrees below zero. And Bobby is snowing like mad. And Bobby has taken a, an ice scraper to his windshield. And he's out there in shirt sleeves. And it's it's 20 below. And I said, Bobby, what the hell happened with it? And his reaction, just matter of fact, he says, just some idiot fan. And that's all. It was never. That was it. Uh, just part of the job, but again, could have been a lot more serious uh, than it turned out. And that's probably the best way to handle it, right? Is you just be like, okay, this is something really funky that that happened. We just kind of we we move on, right? I mean, you can't exactly. sit there and and talk about it. So, yeah, exactly. And you know, again, par for the course back in the day. Yeah. All right, uh, we get a little bit more time here, guys. Um, I know that you've got a, a George. You've got another thing that you want to talk about um, with a couple of fans in the audience that wanted to become uh, pro wrestlers. Well, I think we all know that back in the day of the studio wrestling on TV, it's unlike today where they just put main events on. Back then it was a squash match and you'd have uh, an angle sometimes built in the arena. On this particular night in August of 1967, Roger Kent brought attention to the fact that there was a fan sitting in the front row ringside wearing a mask, just a plain mask. That was all he said. The second week, All-Star Wrestling comes on. There, of course, is that masked fan, again, mask, plain, and a suit. And Roger, again, commented, that fan is back at ringside wearing the mask. No other reference. At the same time, during the program, the fan took it upon himself to walk to the interview area, which was very close to the ring, and interfere in an interview Marty was doing and saying he wanted to be a wrestler. He was quickly escorted away by Bob O'Brien, our old security friend Bob put back in his seat. He did this again the following week, and he was escorted off. Well, during the course of a match between Vern Gagne, the champion at the time, and Jack Pesek, a great journeyman wrestler, this fan, wearing the mask, took it upon himself to leap up on the ring apron, up to the top rope, come down on the back of Vern Gagne when Vern had his sleeper on Jack, and when Vern went down, this mask guy put a figure four leg lock on Vern, the champion, and would not release it until Vern said uncle, which Vern did loudly on TV. That, ladies and gentlemen, was how Dr. X got into the business in the Twin Cities. However, he had been a wrestler for 15, 16 years before that as the destroyer, but new to this area, and that's how they introduced him. Interesting point that George, even George was not aware of. And this goes back to my days where I'd sit in this TV studio matches every single week. There was what they, they wanted Dick Byer, Dr. X to be in that position of the fan in the stands with the mask on for a series of TV one week after another. Well, at one point he could not make it. Uh, to the event. For whatever reason, he couldn't make the TV taping, but they wanted the angle to keep going. So what they did 
is they took referee Marty Miller, and this is an absolute fact, ladies and gentlemen. I swear to you, they took Marty Miller. Marty was about 5'3", so they, they couldn't have him stand up. But they put him in a suit. They had him wear shoulder pads, and they put a mask on him. And Marty Miller, for one or two weeks, was Dr. X. He was the mad Well, He wasn't Dr. X yet, but he was a masked man who took mm. the place of Dick Byer. And again, to show you the, the smart ass that I was, I, I don't know how the hell I ever got a job with this organization. But at one point, I yelled out. We, we wonder the same thing. I, I yelled out. Completely sh- you, 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 shit, you shit on the product for so many years, and then they're like, you know what? Let's just hire that. He can, exactly. he can kill exactly. the business from his. You can kill the business from within. It was all part of the plan. They're like, you know what? This thing's not going to last. Let's have a scapegoat. Oh, that's the guy, that's that, exactly, that's that's the guy exactly. that's made fun of us oh. for years. Yep, yep. Sign him on. You know, that way you can't annoy us. But I at one point yelled at the TV taping, hey, where's Marty Miller? And Marty, I could see it. You could see smoke coming out of every orifice. And every hole in that mask, I mean, the man looked like a, a, a sewer that was backing up. And he, he looked and just if look could kill. Well, for, for weeks, I avoided Marty Miller because I knew if I had a confrontation with this guy, he was going to clock me. Yeah. Years later, Marty and I were able to laugh about it and joke about it. But at the time, first of all, what was I thinking? The answer is I wasn't, as usual. The second thing is, why didn't they ban me from the studio? They could have, but they figured, you know, we can hire this guy on the cheap 20 years from now. So it was, <laughs> it was very interesting. But, yes, Marty Miller was the masked man sitting in the seats. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to mention one more fan that sat at ringside in the TV studio. He looked like a young guy, black hair, black beard, had a trench coat on. And um, he wanted to be a wrestler. He'd come out to the interviewer and he couldn't speak English. And they'd send him back to his seat. Well, he did this a couple times. Eventually, it appeared that he was speaking some foreign tongue. So Wally Carbo, in all his genius, decided to bring Ivan Kelmakoff out to translate what this Polish person appeared to be saying. A Russian and a Polish, I guess they might go together, I don't know. The bottom line was is that this fan turned out to be the mighty Igor Vodic, Vodic, however you pronounce it. And he had took his trench coat off and he had this Mr. Michigan build, and he was a former Mr. Michigan. And he had been a wrestler for 15 years, but... Here he was coming in with this new gimmick, and he was a fan that got into the business, and that's how they worked it. And he was just a playful Polish wrestler who was endeared forever in the ring. Nobody did it better than he did. You know, whether you're you're talking about Ivan Putzky or anybody else, Dick Garza, uh, Mighty Igor, nobody did it better. Uh, Man, you guys, this has been great. Um, I know hopefully people have enjoyed it. They've enjoyed the stories that you guys have told. And again, we're always, we see the feedback, you guys. We you know we see it on Twitter. We see it on Facebook. Um, you can see it right there. 
If you've got more suggestions or ideas, Slick Mick Old School Wrestling, Georgeshire Wrestling Time Machine on Facebook. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, you can catch us on all your podcast platforms. YouTube uh, seems to be really popular. Please subscribe. Uh, that's a big way to, to help us grow this thing. Um, comment, share, just do whatever, spread the word. Um, we're, uh, we're doing our best to try and uh, bring this to you. It's been a two-parter. Um, let's go ahead and before we wrap it up here, guys, let's give the shout outs and the trivia. Let's do the, the trivia first here, Mick. Trivia first. Back in the day, Chris Markoff, our good buddy, is out doing an interview and he's with another wrestler. And Chris says to the TV camera, look at the size of the man's head. I want to know who was the guy that he was referring to. Uh, that had a rather large cranium. If you know the answer, you might win some stuff. This is coming from Chris Markoff, who would come out and say, I got a 26 inches to chest, 19 inches to arms, and we always hoped he wasn't going to go down any farther. <laughs> well, we talked about hot dogs and thumbs, so I think that's yep, uh, pretty much the uh, – anyway, uh, if you know, you can email – Mick at mickcart to gmail.com or George at GS Shire, GS Shire, at Comcast, G Shire. See, see, I'm glad G Shire. You know what? Fuck it. It's there. It's on the screen. Why? Was that that with an F or a PH? PH. Okay. Then it's it's okay. Then it's okay. Yeah. PH pretty hot. Pretty, pretty, pretty hot. That's how, that's how I use that word. It's it's not just a word. Tell us. Shout, shout outs. Out? Let's uh, give some shout outs and uh, let's bring it home. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, go with you first, Nick. My good friend, Brian Gardner, what a wrestling fan the, this guy is. Loyal to the core, uh, enthusiastic, old school fan. Uh, see him at some of the local independent shows. He's become a great friend. Always good to talk to him. Shout out to Brian. I'm going to give my shout out to somebody who, believe it or not, guys, is from Australia. He lives in Australia, and he has sent me Australian programs from the past. He watches our show, Ron Renlanfer, and I hope I pronounce this right. I've never met him in person, Ron Renlanfer, but his programs that he sends me, they're always in mint condition, old programs, and I've sent him some from here. And he said he's enjoying our show. And I said, man, I'm going to give a shout out to you. So, Ron, I love you, man. And thanks for watching us and listening to us. Yeah, the best way to get a shout out in this show is, frankly, just kiss our ass. That's what you have to do. I mean, well, and you can you, you can click on click on YouTube and subscribe. We want yeah, that. That's there easy. No money doesn't cost Maybe. you money, fans. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, George will even pay for it. He'll pay for your That's subscription. That's it. It's free. To, I'll pay for it. It's on YouTube. To, to my YouTube channel, our YouTube channel. Um, and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, K Steve at K Steve 17 on Twitter. Just a, a recent follower. Uh, loves to interact with us on uh, YouTube and uh, also on uh, Twitter. So uh, there it is, guys. It's been a great trip down memory lane. Hopefully, you guys have uh, enjoyed it. Um, if you're looking for some AWA Unleashed swag, it's uh, sodastickco.com. You can get your shirt or you can get a personalized hoodie. 
You get the AWA Unleashed logo in white uh, with the black hoodie. You get your name, whatever you want it to say. It'll be right there, and it's you. When we talk about personalized, nobody can have this except for you. Like, you make it just for you, and this is something that I'm super, super excited about. And, uh, guys, man, this this has been fun. I know we uh, we kind of went a little bit longer, but I feel like it was worth it, and I feel like everybody got everybody got their stories in. I feel like hopefully um, we did some of these people good, bad, or otherwise. I hope we did it. A, yeah, I hope we did it justice. There's no question that we did, and and uh, the question that I do have this week is, how did the AWA ever hire me?